up, everybody? Dan Urban and Scott Fontana back again with another episode of the Couchside Judges. We are extremely excited to dive into this episode because, for the first time, Scott and I will welcome a guest to CSJ. With refereeing and judging drawing so much discontent during the recent UFC events in Jacksonville last week, we reached out to and we'll have a chat with longtime mixed martial arts referee and judge Rob Hines. Rob was gracious enough to agree to chat with us and offer his assessment of close decisions in the Dan Ige versus Edson Barboza and Claudia Gadelia versus Angela Hill fights, offering a judge's take on why those fights would be scored that way. He'll also speak to us about the controversial stoppage in Glover Teixeira's win over Anthony Smith. If you'd like a new perspective on the fights, you won't want to miss this one. So Dan, let's just jump right into it and welcome Rob to the Couchside Judges. For those who don't know, he's a lifelong martial artist with a unique point of view on MMA as a competitor, referee, and judge. His experience as an official dates back just about as far as the UFC has existed, and he literally helped write the unified rules of MMA nearly two decades ago. He's one of five judges accredited by the Association of Boxing Commissions to coach and train officials for the many state and tribal athletic commissions in the United States. And he served on the ABC Rules and Regulations Committee between 2010 and this year. Welcome to the show, Rob. And thanks for taking the time to speak with us and our listeners. Scott, Dan, thank you so much for having me on. Been excited about this. Excellent, excellent. Awesome, Rob. Were you excited about MMA returning uh, this past weekend or the weekend before? Of course, man. You know, any well, sports in general, but anytime we get to see face punching on a regular basis and then it gets taken away, <laughs> what else are we going to do? Yeah, oh, for sure. And we, had, and we had three. We had three events within a week. I think. I think it satisfied our appetite for now. I think so. Yeah. And you're from Illinois. Did you happen to be watching as a sports fan uh, the Last Dance? One hundred percent. Oh I mean, yeah. I've been. I, I've been up. I've been down. I've been in tears. Um, <laughs> you know, actually, when all that was going on, I was a huge basketball fan. So I followed that all the way through. I watched just about every single. Bulls game during that era. So, yeah, it, it was very personal for me at home. And then, of course, for our Chicagoans, um, what an amazing show. Yeah, why don't, we, why don't we get right to it? We've got a bunch of questions for you. We want to talk especially about the most recent events that we had in Florida, like we were talking about. So the first question, Rob, we have for you is, you know, last Wednesday, we had Glover Teixeira. He got that fifth-round TKO over Anthony Smith in a fight that many thought could have been stopped earlier, either by the corner, the referee, Jason Herzog, or the doctor. Uh, now, Herzog, he put out a statement on Friday appearing to accept full responsibility for the stoppage. What was your assessment, you know, as, as again, as a judge and a ref, uh, about the stoppage in that fight? So, first of all, hats off to Jason. Um, not only is he absolutely one of the best in our sport, that man's accomplished, he's trained, he, he's a great decision maker, and, you know, one of the things I think that you guys don't entirely look at sometimes is how we feel as officials after the events we work. You know, I, I think that some of the perception is that, well, that we did what we did and that's it. You know, there are, there are many of us who actually lose sleep over the smallest things and take those things and build on them and improve and improve and improve. And Jason's one of those guys that he couldn't care more. He's outstanding in every way. And, you know, he would look at a situation like that. And I know in his statement, he made a comment about, you know, lessons learned. And that's how all of us, not, not just at the high level, but 
all of us that really care about the sport, that's how we look at it. We look at everything we do in our performance and we take it as a lesson learned, whether it's a good lesson, a bad lesson, or something that just needs to be tweaked. It's pretty easy for us from the outside looking in to, you know, just, you know, comment on what we see and not really understand what what's going in, in the referee's head during it and how he feels afterwards. But he definitely bounced back on Saturday. I thought he had a great night. Well, and that's that's a true consummate professional there. We, we do see officials um, either with less experience or not fully confident in what they're doing. Sometimes when something happens and it doesn't go their way or the way people feel it went and they take a little bit of a little a little bit of a beating and we see with a lot of people that it steamrolls and it continues to affect their performance going forward you know somebody like jason when something like that happens he'll definitely reflect on it but he's not going to let that affect him the very next time he steps into the cage and that's that's a true professional yeah, I think, like Dan said, I, I can echo that. We both thought, and we spoke about that on our on Monday's show, that it really did seem like he was able to let that wash away and put his game face on. And, and I thought he was really sharp on Saturday, too. So, But we should also mention that, of course, it wasn't just being put on Jason's shoulders by the observers. A lot of people were looking at Anthony Smith's corner and wondering about why wasn't the corner willing to kind of step in when he's telling him, like, oh, you know, my teeth are falling out. What is your general opinion as an official about the rarity of corner stoppages in mixed martial arts? Yeah, so first of all, I really I really don't have opinions. I'll give you an assessment. Okay, you sure. Know, what, 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 what I think, in my opinion, doesn't matter. But when we get down to assessing things, you know, obviously the referee is the first person to take care of the safety of the fighters. However... Nobody knows the fighter better than the people that are taking care of them, their corners. They know if there's any little injuries. They know if they're not in quite the shape they should be in. So everybody has a little bit of intel about that fighter. And then, of course, the fighter themselves. Most fighters, you know, as warriors as they are, they'll go out on their shield. They'll take the beating, all that other stuff without giving up. And, you know, I I think all of us make a good point. That's why the referees there, and that's why their coaches are there. So everybody plays a part in that process. Now that makes sense, absolutely. And I appreciate that feedback. I think that's really great. As far as before the stoppage, though, let's talk a little bit about the way some of these rounds were scored, just because we're, we're trying to kind of figure out exactly what's going through a judge's mind when they see such a lopsided round, uh, as we saw in both rounds three and four of this fight. Unquestionably lopsided, right? And all the judges gave... 10-8 rounds in both 3 and 4. But Dan and I, we spoke on our show last week that we thought a 10-7, as rare as it is, could have been warranted for our round 3. What's your general assessment of, of that round in particular? So my general assessment of that round is it's what we call an extremely clear 10-8. There's no, there's no question about it. It was large margin. It met all the criteria of the 3Ds, damage, dominance, duration, all that stuff. Now, when we get to a 10-7, and I did, I did listen to your show from the last time, and Dan, Dan made um, you know, a comment where he read the first line of what determines a 10-7, but you only read the first line. When you read through exactly what a 10-7 is, and you guys got to remember too, the unified rules are written. They're not written for every single scenario, everywhere, every time. It just sure. gives you the baseline of what you're looking for. So when you read the first line of 10-7, 
and then you take that into account, you're not taking it into account enough. The use of the three Ds is really where the differences come between 10.8s and 10.7s especially, but also between 10.9s and 10.8s. When you read off the first line of a 10.7 round within the unified rules, and you're not reading down further and assessing all of it for what it is, it's easy to say, yeah, based on that one sentence, I would call this round a 10.7. But you need, you need to delve in deep and look at all the criteria that goes into what actually a 10.7 is. And one of, one of those criteria is the lack of ability or the lack of fighting back from an athlete. When you have a 10-7, you have all three Ds going, and you're seeing little to no offensive output at all from the opposing fighter. Right. I felt we didn't see any offense from Anthony Smith in that round. That's why I thought, you know, ten clear 10-7 in my eyes. Yeah, I believe with the obviously you guys aren't working with the uh, any of the striking numbers or anything like that when you're making assessments of rounds. But looking back at the round, uh, UFC stats compiled the numbers and Teixeira outstruck him 43 to one, which to me says that's very much a not fighting back scenario. But that's just as an observer uh, in my perspective. Is that something you kind of look at and say? You know, is one strike landed or two? And, you know, of course, every scenario is different, but. We rarely look at the amount. We look at the impact or the damage that they have. Now, Dan, you know, I could I could completely see if if the judges wrote down 10-7, I wouldn't have a debate with that. But I also don't have a debate with them writing down 10-8 because it's a clear 10-8 round. The, the judgment there is whether it was on that line of 10-8, 10-7, you said it was a clear 10-7, which is fine, but you also have to realize when we talk about no defense, no offensive output whatsoever for the duration of a round, that's pretty deep. And, you know, you go back to things like um, Chris Cyborg and Jan Finney. There's a definitive 10-7 round for you. Okay, I remember that you know? one. <laughs> so not, not that I would disagree if somebody assessed it as a 10-7 round, but... It's not one of those where you go, oh, yeah, that should be a 10-7 and anybody else is wrong. That's, that's not appropriate. Okay. That's fair. Uh, Dan, did you have anything else you wanted to ask regarding that particular round of the 10-7, anything you said? No, I think I, think I understand it a little more. I, was, I am curious, though. We have our – I don't know how many shows you've listened, but we like to go back and rescore past fights using a system we've created where – more 1010s and more 107s are scored to provide a more varied score which we kind of feel is more indicative of how the fight actually went we don't grade aggressiveness or area control as a tiebreaker and we just look at effective striking and grappling and basically a 109 is a small but noticeable advantage and a 108 is a clear advantage and a 107 is more of a dominant round like you would see as a 108 do you think that's a good way to score or do you have an opinion on that? Honestly, I don't think it's terrible, but it's also not complete. It's not, it's not indicative of the amount of damage that things do. It's, it's basically, you know, the rounds either a tie, it's close. It was pretty definitive or somebody got their ass kicked. Generally that's, that's a decent assessment, but it's, it's not deep enough. And, you know, I, I know this is my first time with you guys, but, when it comes to 10-10 rounds, people people need to look at that because a 10-10 round means it was 
exactly even, not kind of even, not close to even, even. So if you're going to write down a 10-10 round, it needs to be 100% even. That's why we have the other scores in the system. It's available, but, you know, I always call that a unicorn. People believe in them. People believe they've seen them, but they really don't exist. So, yeah, I've, I've heard you call them unicorns before. I, I, you know, was reading up about you before we, um, before we spoke, and you know, I can understand the point of not giving a ten ten round because of all the things you outlined that you can't really, you know, come up with an exact, directly even fight. Something happened one way or the other to go an advantage, right? Right, and that's why we have the tiebreakers. To your point, Dan, you know, the the system that you and Scott came up with, realistically. It's the same system we have in mixed martial arts. We only have tiebreakers when there's an actual tie, which is 0.0001% of the time. It's extremely rare that a judge uses or should use effective aggressiveness or fighting area control. Very rare. 99.999% of the time, it's effective striking and grappling. So I think we're speaking the same language, just in a different way. The one thing I, I would like to add and I'm not trying to say that our system is like the definitive system that ABC should just adopt. You know, that's, that's not what we're at. But the one thing that I look at when it comes to 10 nines and the amount of them that tend to be given out in fights from, you know, judges using the ABC criteria, it's never sat well with me that if there's a very minimal edge that a fighter will get a 10 nine, but then if they can get a clear, almost dominant, but not quite a 10 eight level edge, it's still a 10 nine. Yeah, of, co- of course. You yeah, know, that's that, that's something that never sits well with us. And, and that, just kind of curious what you think of that. Well, that's the tough part. And we've actually tested the half-point system before and yes. things similar. And overall, it really didn't make that much of a difference in hardly any bouts. And, there, and, and, and it was a test for quite a period of time. But you're right. The 10-9 is the most wide category in MMA scoring but it doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it wide. And, you know, if, if, if it were to be a 3-2-1 scoring system or an ABC scoring system, even if the half-point system were in play, we, we still would have rounds that we would debate, well, is that a 9.5 or a 9? Or is that a 9 or an 8.5? We would still be debating these same things just on more specific levels. Sure. But, but just think about it. The way, the way combat sports is, somebody wins and somebody loses a round. If, if it's a tie, it's a tie. But normally, somebody wins and somebody loses, and that would, that would have to be designated by something. And that's something for us in MMA is 10-9. And not to, say, not to say that it's perfect, and maybe a 10-9 is too wide of a gap, but it is what we have. And it is pretty clear. It, actually, it's the most clear it's ever been what a 10-9, a 10-8, and a 10-7 round are. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the the reassessment you guys did as far as clarifying the language a couple years back, I think, at least as an observer, that seemed to have done a lot to clean up maybe the, the gap in understanding it. But I do feel like that a lot of people at home, you know, fans, and probably even us to a degree, aren't as familiar with how the criteria works. And that is kind of a factor with like big blowback that you get from fighters and, and, and fans on social media uh, in close fights. Uh, do you think there's anything that can be done to help educate the fans in how the criteria you use works? 
Yeah, well, it, it's kind of funny because actually that's been offered. If you see the amount of information that the ABC gives out, it's more than that's ever been given out before. You know, people always wonder if you watch Major League Baseball or National Hockey League or whatever that is, the commentators, the fans, everybody knows exactly what their rules are because their rules are the same everywhere. We don't have that. So so even if we get people to a rudimentary understanding, that's why I'm doing, you know, this podcast. That's why we have more information available out there to educate the fans better. The challenge is, is that fans listen to commentators and commentators and quite frankly, a lot of fighters and a lot of trainers, they don't fully know the rules. They don't fully know the judging criteria. It's always available to be taught to them, but are they seeking that out? And the thing I respect about you two is you guys are very intelligent about how you go about talking about judging and refereeing and that sort of thing. It's just your next level of education to understand the details around it. I would love to learn that. Unfortunately, I just got an email this morning. I was registered for the command course out in Vegas for July. They they advised us that they're canceling it due to the coronavirus. So I was a little disappointed about that because I do want to learn and I, I actually would like to get involved and be a judge one day. For sure. And, you know, with with the whole virus situation and that sort of thing, I believe the ABC is also looking into some online trainings and some online courses. We do do like conference calls and Zoom calls with officials to recap events, rescore rounds, all those other things. We're looking to get it to a point to where it can be accessible to fans and other people. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I would love to be able to find a way to get that, not just to us, but disseminate that to fans. And then, like you said, people who would be curious to really understand what it is they should be looking for in fights. And, and I get it. You know, the more you hear from a commentator, this is the rule, this is the rule, this is the rule. Eventually, if enough people say it, it becomes the truth, even if it's not. So, you know, we totally get that. The good news about the way the sport is moving and the way regulation is moving is that we are being a lot more transparent than we ever have been. And transparency is always great. <laughs> I'm, I'm one for accountability and transparency when it comes to anything. So that's good 100%. to hear. Yeah, 100%. So just to steer back to some of the specific happenings from the fights over the weekend, in particular Saturday, curious to get some of your assessments on some of the really close fights. You had everybody shouting robbery, robbery. And, you know, Dan and I, we don't like that term. But we did get close contests here. In particular, Dan Ige's win over Edson Barboza and Claudia Gadelia's win over Angela Hill. He had round two was the split round uh, that went Ige's way, and round three was split for Gedalia instead of Hill. What was your assessment of those two rounds in particular? Yeah, great. So first of all, two really good fights. Yes. Let, let, let's let's appreciate that for what it is. I think I think that gets lost in the shuffle when we did you know when we talk about scoring and disagreeing and stuff like that. Let's let's appreciate those fights for what they were. Preach. You're right. You're right. <laughs> So here's my assessment on we we want to do Barbosa Ige first. Yeah, sure. Okay, so you wanted round two. Round two, yeah, that was that was the one round that judges were split on. So yeah, so first of all, that's a close round. I gave it 10-9 to Ige for the full five minutes. He was the more effective striker. 
he landed he landed the more significant shots in that round for the five minutes. Barbosa did have a strong end to the round, but my assessment was it didn't outweigh Ige. Okay. We basically thought that that body kick was the most damaging strike of the round, which weighed it in Edson's favor. At least that's how I saw it. Yeah, the the, the body kick was phenomenal. That actually that that was actually a strike that really brought that round for the full five minutes really close. There's no doubt. I wouldn't disagree with that. Okay, sure. so it just it narrowed the gap. It, it it didn't surpass it. Right. Okay. It didn't outweigh it. I think I think sometimes we look at either a flurry or a specific strike and we say, okay, that was the defining moment in the round. We have we have a full five minutes that we have to focus on. Not easy, but that yeah. is what it is. A lot of times the early parts of the round get lost, at least in the fans' mind. Yeah, you know, especially, you know, fans and commentators. Mm -hmm. They they all seem to believe and seem to think that the end of the round is more important than the beginning of the round. Yeah, you hear a lot with commentators and, you know, as far as, oh, you know, leave a good impression with the judges at the end of the round, you know, (laughs) he ended the round on top. When you hear things like that as a judge, you obviously you're laughing now, so you must, that pretty much says what you think of that, right? Yeah, this is an old school boxing where Sugar Ray Leonard would throw a flurry in the last 15 seconds and win the round. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Now, as far as Gadelia, round three against Hill, what did you think of that one? So I, I assessed these. I didn't just watch it. I had 10-9 for Gadelia. She was the more effective striker. She definitely had the more impactful strikes throughout the round, even if Hill was quote-unquote, a little busier, and we don't give any credit to busy. We only give credit to effect, and Gedalia for the five minutes was the more effective striker. Okay. Yeah, that was my original. I originally scored it for Gedalia, and then I watched it again, and then I, I switched. I went Hill. I thought her body work uh, was more effective. And she did. She She landed some really good shots, just not as many and not as frequently as Gedalia did. So no, and that's and that's one of the things where I think people really get confused. Um, not confused as much as kind of tossing it up. You know, the fighter that was busier, the fighter that did more, or that sort of thing. I think I even heard you, Dan, in one of your segments talk about, well, I gave that wrong because they did more. You know, me as a me as a trainer and a coach, I say, well, did more what? If you say did more damage, then great, we're there. You know, so. Again, looking at things a little bit deeper, but that was how I assessed that round. Yeah, that was probably uh, Simone versus Borg. That was probably one of those rounds where I had that assessment. Yeah, and again, and again, nothing terribly wrong with it, but that's where I think, and and this is why I love you guys, that you don't overuse that term robbery and stuff like that. These are close rounds, man. These are close fights. These are... These are well-contested matchups. There is there is no robbery in those situations. There's only disappointment. Either you're disappointed that your person lost, or you're happy that your person won. Right. So when let's let's just for example here, because this round was split, whoever had the the round three for Hill, is that wrong in your assessment, or is that just a different perspective? It's a different perspective. And if you guys are cool with this, I would love to do this for the two of you. Because I really want to help evolve and and shift your mind a little bit for the future. Sure. Yeah, sure. Here's a perspective I would like you to see. When you say that 
well, that round was close. This judge gave it one way. This judge gave it the other. Here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to go back and watch that round. And when specific things happen in that round, whether it's a shot landed, a submission attempt, I want you to look around and see where each of the judges are sitting at that time. This is going to change your minds on a lot of things because there are times that on TV, we get mostly the best perspective. However, we don't get every perspective. Now, if you were to throw a hard right hand and hit me in the face and my back is to you and I don't have any reaction, you might not think that that did damage. However, if you're on the other side of the cage and that right hand lands and you see my nose crush a little bit and my lips start bleeding, you're going to have a different assessment. So I would definitely think about that when, when you go back and forth about, well, this one, it was a close round. This one had a 10-9 this way. This one had a 10-9 the other way. Does that help? That, no, that makes sense. That's a big help because I actually had a question regarding another fight on Saturday where Darren Elkins comes out of a like a clinch situation with a cut under his eye, which later shows that it was caused from a headbutt. Yep. But we don't know. The judges probably didn't see the headbutt unless they're right there. And, and, that, and that's exactly it. And, you know, honestly, the same for the referee. If the referee sees that clash of heads, most likely we're going to stop time. We're going we're gonna to make sure that that fighter gets back to a fair point of competition. If we don't see it, the fight continues on like that. And Dan, you're right. That could probably be assessed as, wow, that was a damaging blow. Even though I don't know exactly what that was, I'm still going to count that. That's a great example. For, for you guys, because you guys are so good at this, I, I really want you guys to start putting yourselves in the judge's seat before before you make a disagreement or an assumption or anything like that. Sure. Because what we see on TV, man, is nowhere near what we see or the way we see it from a judge's seat. Not even close. Now, let me ask you, too, just based on our kind of piggybacking off of that, we have some states now that allow judges to look at screens. Is that correct? So a couple, a couple of the bigger events offer monitors and, you know, I've used the monitors before it's there to be used as a tool. It's not there to be used as the instrument of evaluation. Sure. The reason we do sit at cage side is because we get to, we not only get to see, we get to hear, we get to feel, we get to smell, we get the vibration. So there are a lot of things on TV that we do get, and there's more things on TV that we don't get. But yes, monitors were put in place to be used as a tool. Yep. Okay. And I mean, do you find it to be a useful tool for yourself or, you know, do you hear positive feedback from judges? Do they like it? Do they kind of not want to use it much or? Most like it. There are some that abuse it. Um, If you go back and rewatch fights, occasionally you'll see a judge where the fight's right in front of them and they're staring down at the monitor. That's a misuse of the tool. But now there's also... um, judges seats where one of the corner posts is always in the way. And whenever you get to a certain angle of the cage, that corner post is right in your way. That's where the monitor becomes handy. So again, it's to be used as a tool, not as the instrument. Excellent. Excellent. That's very helpful to hear. I think a lot of people at home hopefully would find that to be an interesting perspective to consider. Um, Anything else that you'd like to kind of tell our listeners uh, to keep in mind just in general when they're sitting at home pretending to be judges? Well, keep in mind that the pressure is not on you. It's okay if you get it wrong. It's okay if you disagree, but because you disagree, 
doesn't mean that it was a wrong call. Now, there are some wrong calls. There are some poor decisions. They're much, much rarer and not as big a deal as it's made into. I guess I guess that would be the overall message to everybody is, you know, I don't know. Have either one of you been in the cage before and refereed? No, I definitely have not. <laughs> I would like okay. to. Have, have either one of you sat at cage side and literally had to judge a fight where you had to pay attention, full attention, five minutes at a time? Uh, closest I've been is on media row. Uh, so a couple seats off of the cage, but no, not nearly as close as I would need to for that. Right. So Scott, that would be a no because you have other things <laughs> in your mind. Of course. When, when, when I sit in that chair, there's nothing on my mind. There's nothing on my mind but those two athletes that deserve 100% of my attention, five minutes at a time for as many rounds as it takes. So Rob, I, I did have a question because sometimes the crowd can uh, play a part. Would you or can judges opt to wear like noise canceling headphones or do you want to hear what's actually happening in the cage and just use your mind to block out the crowd? Yeah, Dan, that's a great question. It's important for us to use all of our senses to, to make evaluations. Now there are some commissions that may allow people to wear earplugs. Um, I don't think any commissions allow like full noise canceling headsets, but you have to remember, you know, part of the reason we sit at cage side are for those things. Now, your experience is going to help you control the amount that the crowd affects you and all that other stuff. Okay. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of like, you know, if, if all of us were on the same little league team and just our mom and dads came to the game and we had 10 people there and now, you know, we get to play in Yankee stadium in the world series, mm-hmm. our experience should take us to the level of where we're able to deal with that. And some people can, some people can't, but it's, it's definitely a skill you have to build. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I think that uh, that about does for me. Dan, is, was there anything else you had for Rob? I did have one question. You were mentioning, you know, you got to put yourself in the judge and the referee's place. You have to experience that to actually be able to understand what they're doing. Is there any shadowing opportunities that any commissions offer? A hundred percent. There's most, most athletic and tribal commissions do have some form of a shadowing program. Okay. Um, there, was, there was actually a period of time where the California State Athletic Commission had not only media, but the media people sat right next to the judge at cage side and assessed the rounds as they happened. It's different everywhere, but there are shadowing opportunities. There are opportunities, you know, for you to talk to a commission and ask permission you know, it probably wouldn't be a UFC or a Bellator or a right. PFL or anything like that. But if you could even get to some of the regional shows, which are actually tougher to officiate and, and literally sit there and put your skills to the test, it's different, man. Yeah, that's something I would like to look into. That would be an interesting experience for me as well. I think it would obviously help us in understanding uh, and commentating on the world of judging in mixed martial arts. So that's, that's really good to know, Rob. Thank you. I would I would strongly encourage you both both of you to do it. Now refereeing, that's that's a different world. For some people it's for them, for most people it's not, even if they think it is. The pressure of judging and refereeing is immense, but the pressure of refereeing is nothing that I've experienced in my life including fighting. Oh yes, that Refere- seems next level to me. <laughs> refereeing is definitely more stressful than fighting myself. I could agree because you have someone else's safety in your hand, it's not just about you. 
That's it, man. Two people safety. Yep. Well, you know, Rob, this, again, this was really educational for us. I hope it was educational for our listeners. And I really appreciate you coming on and speaking with us. I hope that you'll come back with us again soon. Scott, Dan, I'd be happy to come back anytime. You guys are great. I appreciate it. Thanks, Thank Rob. Thank you so much, Rob. I learned a ton on this. This was, this was awesome. Good, good. No, I'm, I'm open to you guys at any time for any questions. Thank you, man. Scott, that was pretty fun, informative, uh, educational. Oh, I had a great time. It was. It's always. It's always great for me to get the perspective of people who do something that I don't, because I don't like to assume I know everything. I think it's really important to talk to people who definitely do. Uh, and Rob certainly knows his stuff. <laughs> no, without question. Oh, absolutely. He was. Cor- he was uh, correcting a lot of things I saw in the wrong way. Obviously, I mean he's the pro. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy for that. I, I, I'm looking forward to using his advice for this podcast in the future. Yeah, you know, the, one of those points that really stuck out for me was the fact that he kind of challenged both us and listeners at home is to remember where the judges are seated. That's something I'm going to utilize going forward. But one thing I really wish is that the UFC would try to make it easier for people to know where the judges are seated and which judges they are. You know, even something as simple as putting a small graphic in the corner at the start of a fight with the names and location on the octagon in relation to the ads or something. You know, just something small. But, you know, maybe there's just so few people who care. I don't know. Sometimes you'll see a little graphic for the main event, and John Anik will briefly run them down, but uh, they don't do that for every fight. No, I want it more often. I think we, we all need it. I mean, the fights we're talking about with Rob today, they were all three round fights you don't get that right you know i think we need more of that i really love that rob noted the 10 10 rounds and the fact that not only do they almost not exist in a judge's mind but that aggression and area control have just about no weight whatsoever because you never almost never go to them yeah you can't go to it unless it is a tie exactly and the fact that rob is saying that there's almost never a case where you would go to them to begin with makes you wonder why we even mention aggression and area control when we're going over the scoring criteria because it's such a minor part of it. I've read articles about that a 10-10 is sort of a cop-out because you couldn't determine a winner. I think the one thing we also need in this sport is the commentators and, and other people need to, as Rob mentioned, they really need to immerse themselves in how judges are scoring a fight because if they're telling us one thing it does start to kind of become fact if you say it over and over again, as Rob mentioned himself. I would love to see, in the process of putting away misconceptions, I think the UFC should hire its own judging or refereeing expert for broadcasts, sort of like Mike Pereira, who works for uh, Fox when they do the NFL broadcast. He's a former NFL ref. Or even, you know, you look at the UFC, they now bring Trevor Whitman aboard to bring the coach's perspective during events. I think we could certainly have that with a judge who could tell you guys, hey, this was a close round. What did you see? Right. They used to do that with Eddie Bravo, but Eddie Bravo is not a, a judging pro. Yeah, that was not. No, that was never like the right thing to do. It was just something of interest. You know, there's a billion, there's a, there's a, not a billion, but there are certainly refs and judges that we just don't see as much anymore. Someone like, like Nelson Doc Hamilton, you know, a very veteran uh, judge that, people would remember back in the day. I'm not sure what his level of interest would be, but I think that would be great, someone of his stature. Right, or even even when Herb Dean decides he doesn't want to ref anymore, I'm sure he's very well-versed in judging as well. Uh, he could speak to, I'm sure, a lot of it. You know, But, you know, refereeing, judging, any any of that, 
it, it would be better than bringing on someone like, like you said, Eddie Bravo. You know, the other thing that really stuck out was the fact that Rob noted that judges rarely look at the number of strikes landed, but instead focus on impact or damage. You know, that was something that was a bit of an eye-opener for me, uh, and it's something that definitely had to be lost on other people at home, that we really just need to look at what the impact is. And it doesn't matter if you're landing, you know, 10 shots. 10 isn't the number that you focus on. It's how many of them were impactful. But, uh, you know, the one thing I also want to note, uh, Rob mentioned the three Ds. For those of you who don't know what the three Ds are, these are damage, dominance, and duration. And judges use those when they're trying to uh, assess a round. Uh, so these are good things to keep in mind for both, you know, fans and, and observers, coaches, fighters, you and I, Dan. Uh, if we're scoring fights at home, we need to be evaluating for those type of things too. Right. Damage over volume is pretty much what I get from that. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and and the one thing, uh, not judging related, but I thought this was fascinating that he mentioned about referees' mindsets when we were talking about Jason Herzog. Now, obviously, he spoke at length about how much Jason Herzog cares about what he does and, and doing the right thing. And, you know, from what we saw, he was able to move on from what we perceived as, you know, maybe not the, the greatest stoppage, something that he seemed to, uh, in his statement, also confirm, but that he bounced back really well in the next event. Rob also mentioning some referees with less confidence or experience, uh, they can let that kind of pressure get to them uh, and snowball. That was interesting to me too because, you know, you think about obviously the good refs, but then, yeah, sometimes you wonder about referees and maybe we don't see them. Maybe they're more on the local level. Yeah, maybe not as seasoned. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but, you know, it's, <laughs> this is a job not for the faint of heart for sure. Yeah, they, they have a, a really tough job. I would never be a referee. I don't think, I, truth be told, I don't think I can handle it. So, you know, I give I have a lot of respect for people who do what Jason Herzog, what Rob Hines do. You know, that's a tough job. Yeah, especially, and then getting all the backlash on top of it, it's not easy. It's a thankless job. But, uh, you know, at, at least on our show, we like to point out both the good and the bad. So Absolutely. And that's a wrap on this episode of the Couchside Judges. Thanks again to Rob Hines for joining us. We hope to bring him back someday as well as welcome more guests in the future to talk about judging and MMA. Past Judgment will return next week and we'll be looking ahead to the next UFC event if it does in fact move forward for next Saturday. Make sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Couchside Judges as well as myself at Dan Urban MMA. And follow me on Twitter as well at Scott underscore Fontana. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay healthy and safe. See ya.